For those that remain in the auditorium then and are also listening and watching online, take your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus and chapter 22, Leviticus and chapter 22. This morning, it is our plan and our goal to finish chapter 22, verses 17 through 33. Pastor Luke looked at the entirety of chapter 21 and the first part of chapter 22 last time we were together. So Leviticus chapter 22, verses 17 through 33. We come now in this part of the chapter before we launch into the different feasts that God had initiated and instituted for the nation of Israel. The reality of the offering itself that is being offered. And so in the last uh, chapter and the first part of this, the focus was on the individuals doing the offering. And now we are turning our focus to on what is being offered, the actual offering itself. And so the title for the sermon this morning is Priorities. What fairly screams off the page from this back half of chapter 22 is the priorities of the nation of Israel as they came to worship, as observed through what they were worshiping and how they were worshiping. How did they view the one who was receiving their worship? How did they review themselves in relation to the one who was receiving their worship? And all of that can be seen through how they were worshiping and what they were worshiping with. Now before we launch in too deeply, no doubt you hear this title of priorities and believe that you know what is coming. And let me just Put a little bit of an introduction here, a little bit of preamble before we dive in. I want to begin where I also hope to end, where we try to end every sermon from this pulpit with the gospel. Please do not hear any part of this sermon this morning and believe that it is all on you to figure out what your priorities ought to be. It is all on you to change any priorities that do not line up as they should And all of the effort is directed so that if your priorities are right, and if they are right enough of the time, God may just love you, and he may just approve of you. Please do not read into anything that I am about to say, or into this passage, or into any passage of scripture, or in any sermons ever preached from this pulpit, that. And I can understand where that might be coming from, because that is our particular bent most of the time. And yet, please understand that as it comes to priorities like everything else in life, we receive that as a gift from God. He reveals to us what our priorities ought to be. He also then is transforming us through the blood of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit to have the same priorities as he does and gives us the power and the desire to move in that direction. So do not read into this sermon, oh yes, here we go again. My priorities are wrong. Pastor Jeff's going to tell me the 15 ways that my priorities are wrong, and i got to go home feeling bad about myself, and I have to do a whole bunch of work to fix it. Now, how you feel about yourself, I can't do much about, but the fixing of it is much more a reality of prayer than it is of work and effort on your part. As we have said throughout the book of Leviticus, 
Holiness is much more a reality of our affections than it is necessarily of our behavior, because our behavior will follow our affections. But oftentimes we can try out our behavior without affections, and it rarely, if ever, lasts. So here in this, as we talk about priorities, the necessity of throwing ourselves on the mercy of God so that he can reveal to us what our priorities ought to be and when he does, that he will not only show us what our priorities ought to be, he has given us the power to change those priorities and the desire to want to do so, all of which comes from him as a gift to us because of his love for us. Now, as it relates to priorities themselves, there are a number of different things that probably popped into your head. Number one is probably money. So when we talk about priorities, we sometimes think, here we go, buckle up, must be a low month, pastor's got to get a little more tithes in the coffers, and so here we go, priorities. What are you spending your money on? Need to spend it on the church. Is there some of those realities? That's entirely possible. But the funny thing about our priorities is, with the benediction, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Once again, we sometimes get that reversed. We think that we follow our heart, and that then leads to us treasuring the thing that our heart desires. But the reality is, what we treasure, what we already hold as of highest value, that's where our heart is. And it oftentimes doesn't take much to reveal that. Ask yourself some leading questions. What makes me angry? What do I get really upset about, uptight about? What am I anxious about? When I have time to myself, what do I think about? What occupies my thoughts and my attention? What am I working towards? What do I treasure? What we treasure then will be where our heart actually is. So the reality, once again, is not necessarily our expenditures, although they can be a revealer of our heart, but more so, where do we, what are we treasuring? And what we treasure reveals to us where our heart already is. Now, money's a funny thing. It's not just a mere matter of where do we spend it, but it also matters circumstances and different, all kinds of different things. I used to work in construction, in the trades, I distinctly remember more than one homeowner at the beginning of the project, not worrying a whole lot about the expenditures, certainly looking at the invoices, but they had procured the loans and had the money necessary. But I have seen grown adults, rational, intelligent adults, arguing with trades about 50 cents at the end of the project. Priorities have changed. Went into this thing, we had lots of money to get this done. And now we're starting to look at it realizing, we're a little tight. Our priorities have changed. I have also seen individuals that have picked up and replaced items in the store because they were 50 cents more than they wanted to pay for them, but will make a rational, cogent, and passionate argument for why they should spend $40,000 on a motorcycle or some other toy. Priorities. Where is our treasure? That is where our heart is. 
But it's not just a matter of our money, although that is a big part of it when it comes to our priorities. It's also a matter of our time. Where do we spend our time resources? One of the things that Apple brought in just before I left the Apple ecosystem was uh, in their settings, you can actually go and look and see where you spent your time as you used the device. And there were more than once that I thought for sure Apple was a liar. There's no way that I was on Facebook for three hours. There's no way. I was just skimming a few things. I did not watch nine hours of YouTube in two days. That's crazy talk. I watched one video. Where's our time spent? Our time priorities. Our relational priorities. Who gets our relational and emotional energy? And who gets nothing or the leftovers? All of us, every part of us is involved in this discussion of priorities. And as we come to the types of offerings that the nation of Israel is to make to the thrice holy God, this idea and reality of priorities is at the forefront. And so in the first place, we need to prioritize God as supreme in verses 17 through 25. As it matters what type of priest is doing the offering, so too it matters how and what is being offered in verses 17 through 25 of our passage. We see the reality of prioritizing God as supreme. Now, there were some of you, as we announced that we were going to go through the book of Leviticus this year, that inwardly and outwardly groaned. And there are some of you, as you sit here this morning, are still in that camp here in August. But what's fascinating is you may have read this passage in the past or skimmed it so you could make sure that you could check off your Bible reading plan for that particular day. And maybe didn't pick up on what hopefully now you can, having walked through the first six chapters of the book of Leviticus. What jumps out off the page to me is, we have five different types of offerings, as you recall, in the distant mists of time, going back to the month of January. There are only two offerings that are mentioned by name here in this passage as it relates to what is being offered. And that, in and of itself, speaks to our priorities as we go to worship. See, if I've sinned against God and I need to offer a sin offering or a guilt offering, I'm probably, just from sheer self-preservation, going to make sure that the offering I offer is somewhat more acceptable than a different type of offering. But what are the two offerings mentioned in verses 17 through 25? They're the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. The burnt offering is particularly of note because the burnt offering, as we know, is the, as we remember, right? Everybody remember? Oh. Breaks a pastor's heart. We all remember, right? Everybody remembers? The burnt offering is completely consumed in its entirety. Nothing for the worshiper, the offerer, or even for the priests. Burnt offering is completely consumed. Well, again, if you are not prioritizing God as supreme, and if you know that the entire offering is going to be all burnt up anyway, why wouldn't it be okay to offer the leftovers? Offer something you don't want anyway. 
off of the worst of your flock that you weren't going to use anyway. And then the fellowship offering again is offered and the priests get some and then you use the rest for food as a community barbecue. And since you're going to eat it anyway, why wouldn't it be more appropriate to offer something that you were going to slaughter for food anyway, that maybe you weren't going to use for breeding or other things in your flock? The offerings themselves speak to prioritizing God as supreme. We give to God, we ought to give to God our best, or better than that, we ought to give God our all. He already has all of us, twice, because he made us and he's remaking us through Jesus Christ. So you're his anyway, and we should reflect that in how we live, but oftentimes we don't. We try to cut corners. And so in verses 17 through 21, we see the reality of valuing the recipient of the offering and the types of offerings offered. It speaks to your view of the one being worshipped. What type of offering you bring speaks to the level of respect and awe and appreciation and love that you have for the one being worshipped. So God is very clear in this passage that no animal with any sort of blemish. And what is fascinating is there are 12 things mentioned here as far as offerings. They are mirrored in the reality of the priests that we looked at in chapter 21 in the first part of 22. Specific things mentioned that animals could not have this as a reality and still be an acceptable offering to God. Because to bring to God as an offering anything that is lame or blind or otherwise useless to the offerer, I was going to give this away anyway or kill this anyway, might as well go and offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And far too often, then, in our lives, God does get our leftovers, if he gets anything at all. I'll give if I can. I'll give as long as everything else is as I want it to be. And then if I have any left over, I'll give that to God. I'll give God some time and resources and energy if I have anything left over. I'm a busy person after all. There's a lot of things going on, and God understands. I'll give people in my church family relational energy and relational time if I have anything left over. Hey, I have a night free this week that I didn't have it jammed with other stuff. Maybe I should look into inviting somebody that I haven't had over in a while. Maybe I can expend some relational energy that I have left over. How often do we give God and each other the worst of ourselves and not the best of what we have and are all. Notice there is a valuing of the offering itself in 22 through 24. The offering itself actually matters. These 12 realities that God brings out that mirror the realities of the priests that are doing the offering. This is important because of what this pictures. As we know, every offering in Scripture points to the ultimate offering, Jesus Christ, on the cross that we have just sung about this morning. And anything less than a perfect offering means that our salvation is less than perfect. And in a beautiful reality, Jesus Christ the righteous is not only the one doing the offering, he is also the offering itself and the one that the offering is being offered to. How amazing is our God. 
and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His offering was perfect because He is perfect. Never ceased to amaze me in the early days of a camp that I was involved in when I was in high school and college. The sheer number of individuals that had this as their mindset. I'm going to throw that in the dump. Hmm. I wonder if the camp could use it. We had a ping pong table that looked like it was attacked by rabid and ravenous beavers. We had a pool table that was concave. It was more of a bowl than it was a table. You'd hit the balls with a cue, that cue that had no tip on it. It was just the wood that was left over. The balls were all chipped and broken, and you would try to break, and all the balls would settle back into the middle. So everybody won. <laughs> we had residential fridges and freezers instead of the ones that we actually needed for an industrial-type kitchen or a kitchen of that kind, and ones that people were going to throw out and instead decided to donate and that is not the only time that I've come up against that attitude. And certainly I have recognized that, own atti that attitude in my own heart and life. How often does what we are giving God not matter to us? When what we're giving God ought to be our best. God ought to have all of us because he already does. How often do we recognize that? And then notice verse 25, and this intrigues me. Valuing God without loopholes. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. God, as God always does, since he is in the past, present, and the future, knows that when they get into the land of Canaan, the land that he has promised them, a land flowing with milk and honey, they're going to interact with the inhabitants of that land, who have different practices as it relates to their flocks. And as they involve themselves in trade and bartering back and forth, they're going to purchase animals that have been mutilated in some way, especially as it relates to verse 23, or verse 24, sorry. And so what might an Israelite be tempted to do? God, you know my heart. I want to give you the best. But I just bought this sheep from one of my next door neighbors, who, by the way, doesn't worship you like I do. And when you know it, it's got an issue. So what am I supposed to do? It's not my fault, right? I, I didn't do that to the animal. It was already done when I purchased it. And so God, you, you, you'll take this, right? You, you understand. We're good, you and me, right? And God, looking ahead to the future, says, even those animals that you will purchase from the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, if they are unacceptable, if they have blemishes, they are not acceptable to be sacrificed to me either. How often do we want to preserve the best, especially of the things of this life, for ourselves and give God and others something that's lesser? And we've got all kinds of excuses for it. Well, you know, I, I would have, but, you know, it's busy. Got things I'm doing, things going on. In the second place this morning, verses 26 through 30, prioritizing God's values. There's a shift here in verse 26, another phrase that we have uh, seen before. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this oftentimes means now there's a different sort of perspective coming. 
And what we see in verses 26 through 30 is values that God has that he wants his nation to also have. The first place then we see valuing life. They were not to offer an animal until it was at least eight days old. A baby born to its mother was not to be separated from its mother until it was at least eight days old. Of course, the eighth day is very important in the nation of Israel. Males were to be circumcised on the eighth day. There's a lot of symbolism there. Clean on the eighth day, as we've looked at also through the book of Leviticus that everybody remembers, right? But this, this idea of seven days and on the eighth day available, there's an, a sense in which a mother animal has time with its uh, baby to have it uh, nurse and feed and, and be weaned before it can be offered as a sacrifice. There's a humane treatment here of animals. I think also in verse 27, for any of you that are involved in agriculture it, it, with animals, you know fairly quickly after an animal is born whether or not it's going to make it. And also the nation of Israel could be tempted to say, well, this animal isn't going to make it anyway. Maybe that'll be my sacrifice to God. Once again, <laughs> priorities. Notice verse 28, you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. Mirroring what God says in Deuteronomy 22 through his servant Moses 22, 6, if you take eggs or young baby birds out of the nest, do not take the mother also. There's a sense of conservation here, but also humane treatment of animals. God values life. And even in the institution and carrying out of a sacrificial system which involves killing animals, God values life. Death has only come as a result of sin. God is life, is the author of life, and he loves life, promotes life, and those who follow him ought to do the same, and we ought to prioritize that in all that we do. Valuing generosity and faith, in verse 30, it shall be eaten on the same day, the fellowship offering. You shall leave none of it until the morning. I am the Lord. Once again, reminding us that when a fellowship offering was given, not one for a vow, but one that was done just in um, thanksgiving to God for a specific answer to prayer, a specific blessing, or just in general, the offering was to be enjoyed by many people. It could not be hoarded, and it cannot be saved. It was to be given to God in worship and that everybody was to benefit from it. And essentially a communal barbecue. And again, showing the values of generosity and the values of faith. To offer an animal, especially an animal that could be used for breeding, that was valuable to the flock, to offer that to God and to invite all your neighbors in to participate in the eating of that animal certainly shows generosity and it also shows faith that God is going to provide for your needs. But we skip verse 29, and notice in the third place then there's a valuing of God himself. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. God is not saying to sacrifice this so that you may be accepted in the sense of the, doing the sacrifice itself. The focus is on how you are sacrificing and what you are sacrificing. When you come to sacrifice, do it in such a way and with such an animal that it shows respect and love and appreciation and gratitude and just awe at God's grace and mercy as you offer it. How often do we do this? How often do we stand in awe of the cross? How often do we take the time to remember who we used to be 
and who we in many ways still are left to our own devices. And when's the last time we cried out to God and thanked him for saving a sinner such as us? Just to stand in the cross. I, that song, Jesus Strong and Kind, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a shift in the third verse. And it gets me every time. It says in the first two verses, if this is true, Jesus said, I can come to him. But did you notice the third verse? How does it start? Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. When's the last time we've, we've really appreciated that? When's the last time that's humbled us and we've thanked God for that? How, how often would we be where we should not be were it not for the grace and mercy of God? Where would you be this morning were it not for the cross of Jesus Christ? What priorities would you have one of which would probably not to be here this morning. I've said this so many times in the pulpit, I'm getting sick of saying it, but I'll say it again. If Christianity is a hobby to you, it's probably the stupidest hobby in the world. If Christianity is a hobby, get another hobby. Because Christianity is not a hobby. Christianity is not something that you do. It's not an event that you attend. Christianity is something that you are. That you are radically being transformed to be. Christianity's all in or it's not anything at all. There's no a little bit of Christianity. And so that's the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does not transform somebody and have them then stay the same. You can't meet Jesus and walk away unchanged. If you've truly met him and been changed by him, when Paul got up from the ground on the way to Damascus, he was never the same. And everyone in here that has met Jesus or better been met by Jesus can give testimony to that fact. This was the direction I was heading. This was my heart. This was my mindset. These were my goals, my dreams, my passions. And then Jesus met me and everything changed that day. And if that's not your testimony, you need to consider whether or not you actually are a Christian. Because Christianity is all in or nothing. It's not a hobby. And thanks be to God that he's all in with us and not part way. He is our sure and steady anchor that will hold fast through all the storms of life and even the wave of death. And then we come to verses 31 through 33, the anchor of this section of chapter 22. Let me read those verses for you this morning as we close. Leviticus chapter 22, verses 31 through 33. So you shall keep my commandments and do them, I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. There are six things I want us to see from these three verses. And there is one that I do not want us to see, and I want us to again be reminded of this. How does verse 31 start? So you shall keep my commandments and do them. And where does our mind almost always go? All right, I can do this. Something I got to do, and I can do this. Thank you, God, for salvation. That was a hurdle I couldn't get over. Great, I got it from here. I can do this. And we read the imperatives of Scripture and neglect the indicatives. 
We read the commands of Scripture, believe that it's on us fully and ultimately to keep them, and we forget the indicatives of Scripture. So walk with me through you with walk with me if you would through these three verses and see what God has for us. First of all, we see God's authority. What does he say repeatedly in this passage? As he has said repeatedly throughout the book of Leviticus, I am the Lord. God is the one who is in control of all things. God is the one who is sovereignly, graciously ruling over the entire universe. Not you. The biggest lesson that we need to learn in life starts when we're born. And I tell parents this all the time. As a parent, your job description is basically this. Teach your children they're not God. And as a 44-year-old and individuals in this congregation that are older than that, that is a continual struggle. Every moment of every day, we struggle with not believing that we're actually God. We have to remind ourselves, you are not God. God is God. There is a God. (laughs) But there's only one, and it's not you. So God says to his nation of Israel, I am the Lord. But notice this is not just top down in the heavenlies with a big hammer waiting to strike you down when you mess up. This is not that type of authority. Notice that word, and I've said it again many times, I'll say it again. In your English Bible, it's probably all caps, capital L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh. It has been uh, turned into a word that actually isn't a Hebrew word, Jehovah. We know that name of God as the personal, fatherly name of God, one of the names he has given to those who know him, to those who are his children. So while there is an authority here, yes, in the name of God, there is also God our Father, and we must always remember this. God is not coming to us for his perverse pleasure to make us squirm and dance and do exactly the right thing in exactly the right way or else he's going to smite us and bring pestilence and famine and the sword. No, God is our Father who loves us, knows what's best for us, created us, knows how we should act, behave, think, desire, and, and, and love. And when we don't, he is transforming us through the one who is perfect, Jesus Christ, his only son, so that we will. God is our Father and do not forget that. Notice God's sovereignty the back half of verse 32, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Again, this phrase has already appeared in Leviticus. It appears again here. Who is doing the setting apart? Who is the one transforming us to be more like God? Who is the one that's making us holy? God is doing that work. God is the one that is in control. God is the one that is in charge. God is the one that is transforming us. It is not exclusively, ultimately, or even mostly on us to do that work. He's the one that's doing it. He's moving us in this direction towards him. Our role is simply to follow him in the direction he's already taking us. Now you can fight against that direction, but it's going to go hard. What did, what did Jesus himself say to Paul? Paul literally, as Paul would know from agriculture, I have a stick with a sharp pointy end that I'm jamming into your backside, an ox goad that we'd use to get the ox, a larger animal, to go in the direction you want them to go. Now, if they win in that direction, never need to apply the goad. But Paul, you're kicking back against, Paul, I'm moving you in the direction I'm going to move you. I will get you there. Why are you pushing back against that? Work with me, not against me. 
And actually, isn't it kind of a foolish thing to work against God? <laughs> and yet, how often do we try to do that? Even those of us that are hidden. God's sovereignty. Notice his grace and salvation. I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. The incident in the Old Testament that God always refers back to that's the greatest display of both his power and his grace is the exodus from Egypt. Repeatedly through the Old Testament, post the exodus, the prophets, the psalmists, the writers, all of these go back and say, our God brought us out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. Just in our Bible reading again today in 1 Samuel, even the pagan nation of Philistia, the Philistines remember God bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt. How are we supposed to fight against that? God bringing his nation out of Egypt is the greatest display of his grace and his power in the Old Testament. And what is the greatest display of God's power and grace in the New Testament? The New Testament authors refer to it frequently, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Done for us so that the sting of sin and the sting and power of death no longer holds us in its grip. Jesus Christ the righteous rose back to life from the dead, triumphing over, triumphing over sin and death for us. That is the greatest display of God's power in the New Testament and a display of his grace in both the new and the old. Why do we prioritize the way the things, that we, things the way that we do? Why do we desire to prioritize the way things the way that we should? God's grace. It shouldn't just be a sense of duty or obligation or begrudging if I don't, God will smite me. No. Do we, do we recognize and are we thankful for and humbled by what God has done for us through Jesus Christ the righteous? We are sinners saved by grace. God's grace. He says, I brought you up into the land of Egypt, where, by the way, you were slaves. No prospects. Oppressed. I rescued you. When's the last time you shared with your kids or your grandkids the story of God's rescuing you? When's the last time you reached out to God and said, thank you for rescuing me? That's what influences our priorities. That's what helps us to rightly prioritize things. God's holiness. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. God is different. He is holy other. It's the only attribute of him that is repeated. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Our God is holy and he is transforming us to be the same. Perfection, perfectly loving and kind and compassionate and gracious and merciful and, and full of self-control and truth and, and mercy and kindness and gentleness and goodness and all of these things. That is what God is transforming us to be. To be more like him who is only holy. It is only after all of this is taken into consideration that we go back to 31a and see God's commands. The command is there. Keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. The command is there. But it is firmly based on and founded in the indicatives of the truth that God loves us more than we could possibly understand or fathom. He has done more for us 
that we could possibly thank him for given multiple lifetimes. He is doing the work. He is making us the way that we ought to be. He is God, supreme over all the universe, but he is also our gracious Heavenly Father. In light of all of those things, there is the command to prioritize him and to obey him. And so once again, to close where we begin, do not hear in this passage or in this sermon. I'm going to go home now and I'm going to try harder to prioritize things. So I'm going to sit down this afternoon, I'm going to make a list of all the things that I'm involved in, all the things that I'm spending my money on, and then I'm going to reprioritize it. And if I do that, and I do that right, I do that in a way that's acceptable, then God will love me. Please don't hear that. That's not what this passage says. It's not what I have said from the pulpit. Jesus Christ the righteous came and died because all of us had the wrong priorities. And the people he died for had such wrong priorities, they called for the one who healed them, loved them, was compassionate to them, and was their creator. They called for him to be crucified. You don't get more wrongful priorities than that. And in the face of hate, Jesus is Love And in the face of lies and deception and slander, Jesus is truth. And in the face of harshness and intolerance, Jesus is kind and good and compassionate. And he, he hung on that cross and bore in his own body all the penalty for all of our sin. And he stood there and took it all as both the one being offered to the offering and the one doing the offering. Jesus Christ, the high priest and the lamb and Lord and Savior in that moment bearing our sin so that we could be free, that we could be like him, that we could have our, the right priorities. The gospel is good news because it's not on us to make the changes on our own in order that God will love us. No, the gospel is God already loves us, has borne the penalty for not having the right priorities on his own son on the cross so that we can have the desire to have the right priorities and live out those right priorities out of a heart of gratitude, not of obligation and drudgery and fear. That's the gospel. God is giving the nation of Israel an opportunity to bring to him their best to show what they think of him and how and what they offer. And so the question this morning is, do we value God supremely? Does it show in how we worship and in what we worship with are our priorities shown? And do those priorities show that we value God above all else? Are we all in or are we thankful, but I got stuff to do. I got other things that I treasure. And so those things have my heart instead of Jesus. Jesus desires all of us. And so if you're here this morning 
and you are not a follower of his. Your priorities are not what they ought to be. I pray that you would talk to myself, one of the other elders, the person that brought you, and understand that only Jesus can save you from your sin and give you life and life everlasting and abundant and eternal. And cause you to see things as they really are, and to prioritize things as they ought to be. And for those of us that are his, are we humbly grateful for all that he has done for us? Are we thanking him and are we showing that in what we're giving to him? Are we giving him our best? The woman comes to Jesus and breaks a flask of perfume that cost an entire year's wage. And there is shock and even scandal amongst the crowd. And what is Jesus' response? To whom much has been forgiven, there is much gratitude. Oftentimes, the level of our priorities is a revealer of how much we think God has saved us from. And so the question we have before us this morning is those that are his, if we are his here this morning, how aware are we of who we actually are and who we would be apart from Jesus Christ? And does it show? Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We are often tempted to give you and others what is left over. And yet, Father, you, from the beginning, have always given us your best. You created an entire planet specifically designed for human life and flourishing. It's the only one of its kind. It's your best. And we have and are messing that up. You continually gave us your best as we looked at a few Sundays ago. That you were bringing your nation of Israel not just to any land, but a land flowing with milk and honey. And they messed that up. And even in our Bobberding plan, reading the book of Jeremiah, we see that. Father, you gave your best. You gave yourself. From before you ever created anything, you had a plan to redeem us. That did not come as a result because you were angry with us and your son loved us and convinced you to save us. It came as a result because you love us. And your son and your Holy Spirit love us. And together, you, Father, the triune God, planned for our failures with your redemption. We thank you for the cross where you gave your all, you gave your best. And in the face of scorn and mockery and hatred, your son hung there and took it all for us. And yet, Father, we still, as we sit here this morning, we still don't think we're that bad. We still think that we're okay. And we're certainly better than so-and-so. And how abhorrent that is to the reality 
how that flies in the face of your grace. And how often we need to be reminded of how sinful we are, but how gracious you are. Thank you for your grace. And out of gratitude for your love for us, your affection to us, your forgiveness of us, are we humbly grateful for that? And does it show in what we prioritize? Are we building up through our resources, our money, our time, our emotional energy, a hoard of things that are all going to perish? Do we relate to you only because of what you may or may not be able to give us? Or, Father, do we hold you as supreme? Do we, like the one who sold all that he had to buy the field in which there was contained the pearl of great price, are you our supreme value? And so nothing is too good. Nothing is too valuable. Nothing is too costly to sacrifice for you because you are the one we love above all else. May that be true of us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.